Pavo is a professional development platform designed to meet learners where they are by providing engaging learning experiences, peer learning opportunities, and coaching. We don't just teach you new concepts, we help you apply those concepts in your day-to-day -day work life. Welcome to Kavu's 16th Minute Podcast. I'm Rebecca Dobrinsky, the product owner for Kavu's content team and the host of the 16th Minute. At Kavu, we use the term 16th Minute for topics that come up during our 15-minute daily scrum but need more of a discussion. It's a great way to let your team know that you need a bit more clarification on something you're working on or simply need some time to talk through an idea. Let's get this episode 16th minute started. Today's guest is our resident coach, thought leader, and Kavu COO, Dr. Larry Tribble. Larry recently wrote a book review on Annie Duke's Thinking in Beds, and we thought it was a great topic to dive a little further into. Larry is an experienced businessman with a 30-year career in leadership and management, mostly in the IT and development space. He completed his graduate studies in 2016 with an award-winning dissertation on the Strategic Management of Information Technology and was a finalist for the Strategic Management Society's Best Paper Award in 2015. He received the UA Culverhouse Business School's Outstanding Dissertation Award for the 2016 academic year. He was part of the executive office of the largest IT project at the time for the state of Alabama, integrating six different systems from state agencies. He has run his own management consulting business and is now helping Kavu reach its goals. Larry earned his BS in management from the University of Alabama at Birmingham in 1991, and from the University of Alabama, he has earned an MBA in 2006, an MS in enterprise consulting in 2012, and his PhD in strategic information systems in 2016. He also holds active certifications in Scrum and Scrum at Scale. All right, well, welcome, Larry. Thank you. So before we get started, tell our listeners a bit about your role at Kavu as well as your coaching practice. Yeah, at Kavu, I'm trying to help structure the organization. So my title is Chief Operating Officer, which means that I have to help figure out how to grow a company from four or five people up to larger scale. We don't know exactly what that scale is going to be yet, but I have to help with that. My coaching practice is older than my engagement with Kavu. And my coaching practice centers around management topics. So decision-making, uh, habit formation, day-to-day -day what happens at your desk, time and attention management. Those are things that I coach. And I call it management coaching because most people, even in management roles, have not studied management. Mm -hmm. And I believe that it's a distinct specialty from any technical specialty, such as programming. So I think it needs to be taught and learned, and it's not normally taught or learned, even in, say, most business schools. Oh, I totally agree. A lot of people are made managers, and they have no idea what it means to be a manager. And the culture around management is very much, if you can do it, then you can coach, train, manage somebody else doing it. And in my experience, that typically proves to be false. So oftentimes in the programming world, we'll take a great programmer and turn them into a manager. And many times, unfortunately, we lose a great programmer and gain an average manager, uh, or at least mm -hmm. a manager in training. Yeah, it's, it's not always easy to get that, that recipe right. So I'm glad that, so one of the things you and I often do is talk about these kinds of things, and we tend to nerd out about them a little bit. 
so I'm kind of excited that we get to nerd out a little bit on the Thinking in Bets book. So before we dive in, I just want to remind everybody we have a book review on this book on our blog, and you'll be able to check that out as well. But right now we're going to jump into a discussion. So one of the things that that you know we often hear is that life is a chess game. But Duke's premise is that it's more like a poker game. So after reading this book, chess or poker, or is it skill versus luck? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I think uh, Annie Duke is trying to make a distinction around the notion of hidden information. Mm -hmm. In chess, and chess players out there know this, there is relatively little hidden information. The only thing that's hidden is what your opponent's strategy is. But if you look at a chessboard, all the pieces are in play, nothing's hidden, don't roll dice, you don't have cards that you can play and say, no, you, you have to give me your pawn. And so the notion of a chessboard is that the better player almost always wins. And if you've watched uh, a professional or, or very experienced chess players, they're always noting the moves in every game. And that's so they can go back, win or lose, and find where the mistake was. So it's mm. always a presumption that if you lose, it's because you missed something or made a mistake. If you look at poker and many other games besides chess, there's much more hidden information. I learned, uh, I watched poker on TV and I learned it's a lot harder when you can't see what the other player has. Uh, so that was disappointing and costly. Uh, but anyway, so, you know, if I've got cards in my hand and the whole goal is you can't see what I've got and you have to try to guess based on my actions. Mm -hmm. And so then her premise becomes in life and in organizational decision-making and pretty much everywhere. There's often hidden information, information we're not aware of for various reasons. And sometimes it's hidden because it's a bargaining situation. I'm not going to tell what my budget is, for example, even though I know it. And other times it's hidden because it's a matter of chance. I mm -hmm. think we'll talk about that distinction a little bit coming up. Yeah, because one of the things that she does talk about in the book is uncertainty. So what can we learn about uncertainty from Annie Duke? Yeah. And I kind of tipped my hand, so to speak, uh, on that one a second ago, because she talks about uncertainty, and I think she wants to distinguish uncertainty from hidden information. So they're not really the same thing. Mm -hmm. So in a poker game, you know, after the cards are dealt, you have zero uncertainty about the cards that you're holding. The only reason I'm uncertain about that is because you won't tell me. Mm -hmm. Now, contrast that to a game involving dice, say that game. Okay. There's actual uncertainty before either of us rolls the dice. Mm -hmm. So neither one of us actually knows. And I think that distinction can help us in our course of action, in fact-finding or research before we take a decision. Mm -hmm. If it's actual uncertainty, then you just have to play the, st the statistics, right? You and I both know that if you have two dice, the most common roll is a seven. Mm -hmm. 
we both have to base our actions on that uh, probability versus in, say, poker or in negotiation or in different areas of business, you know precisely what your situation is. And it also impacts the way you do research. So if somebody has a hidden, hidden information, then you can work to understand their side by their actions, where I can tell nothing about what your dice roll is going to be because you do it in one hand versus two. Right. right. Yeah. So we can, we can apply our research more carefully um, and thus save time and presumably be able to make quicker and better decisions. So in one part of the book, Duke states that in most of our decisions, we're not betting against another person. Rather, we're betting against the future versions of ourselves that we're not choosing. Do you think this adds kind of a certain pressure to people to ensure they're doing their best to set their future up for success? You know, we talk about research paralysis or analysis paralysis that you get caught in this research loop. So what, what kind, how does, how does this pressure come about? Do you think, and how are we going to, uh, address that when we're looking at the uncertainty and hidden information. This is a tricky idea because most psychologists and decision-making types in individual decision-making will tell you that we don't think of our future selves enough. So mm-hmm. for example, if you're doing something now that's going to pay off in the future, say working on your health, as a young person, you may go to work out and you may like the way you look better, right? How your clothes fit or something like that. But the health implications of working out are very much a future event. Mm-hmm. So we're thinking about our future selves and we're doing the work now to get healthy so that our future self is healthier. And this may be decades, right? So some people will say we don't think of our future selves enough and that envisioning your future self is actually a way to motivate yourself to take those actions today. And there's thousands of long-term decisions, you know, retirement plans and, and all these different things. In terms of the, the stress and pressure, she makes the point that any decision eliminates alternatives. And it's interesting, really, because the etymology of the word decide, the second part of the word, is the same origin as suicide. Mm -hmm. Sorry to use that term, but it's the first one that came to me. In the fact that to decide is to literally kill the options and focus on one. I had never thought of it that way. Yeah, and so that's interesting, right? So you... When you, you know, decide, you can only take one course of action out of many. And so, but it is true that the aspect that we're betting on is if I take this action, my future self will be in a different state than if I don't take this action. And so thinking about those possibilities is a really good way to motivate yourself to do something. I don't see that it terribly increases the stress of the decision. Okay. And at the end of the day, humans, uh, Herbert Simon, the economist, uh, I think he's an economist, 
won a Nobel Prize for the notion that human beings are satisficers. And the word satisficing that he coined means that as humans, we don't envision every possible outcome and choose the absolute best. We choose the best solution that meets kind of a, a goal, right? And the way to think about that is, you know, if you go to the store and you have in your mind a particular brand and flavor of ice cream and you get to the store and they don't have it, it's pretty unlikely that you just walk out of the store with no ice cream, right? So we as humans are pretty good at, well, you know, my best of all possible choices is just not available, so I'll take the second best. And that's the term satisficing. Okay. So we do that with our future self as well. That's kind of interesting. Of course, I'm now thinking about ice cream and what would I do if my favorite ice cream wasn't there? And I don't know, I might be in the minority. I have been known to walk out and not get it. Right. Uh, but but I have also chosen the, the next best option. Right. And you know this ice cream exists. Mm-hmm factory may be three states away where you can certainly get some or it might be at the next grocery store yeah but most people you know oh well i think it might be at this grocery store and they go look and they go well it's not here most people will pick something else rarely is it important enough for us to go to another store much less to all the stores that may have in the search for this particular kind of ice cream. Yeah, because I wouldn't search. I would just opt to not buy the ice cream. You know, I wouldn't be like, okay, Sprouse doesn't have it. I'm going to go to Publix. Okay, Publix doesn't have it. I'm going to go to Whole Foods. That's probably not going to happen. You know, I'm not yeah. going traipsing about five different neighborhoods to find an ice cream per se. Of course not. So you're either going to decide that you really didn't need ice cream, which is a satisfying decision. Yeah. Or you're going to pick something that's not exactly that, but is reasonably close to it that you can be reasonably happy. Reasonably, yeah. So now we're going to, you know, hopefully people will start thinking about how they think about their ice cream after this. <laughs> I don't want to confuse anybody um, because the research is that as we're making decisions kind of counterintuitively, the more options we have, the categorically worse decisions yeah, that goes into advertising and placement of cereal boxes, and the cereal aisle is the worst for that. Oh, absolutely, and they've tested it a bunch of different ways. Um, one experiment that, that uh, springs to mind was uh, they had people select among, it was, I think, 30 or so jars of, and I'm pretty sure this was like jam, right, mm -hmm. jam, jam or something, so they would taste each one, and um, they had what the jam people thought was the best of all possible choices in that mix and the worst of all possible choices. So they had a big range. And, you know, there's some variation in taste, right? I don't always agree with the experts on what I think tastes good. But the best and the worst were in this pile of 30 and the best and the worst were in this selection of like four. Mm -hmm. And as they went down from 30 towards four, they could actually see people making better choices uh, among the different uh, 
jams and jellies. And how this works practically is you probably have a limited number of investment options in your company's 401k. Mm-hmm. Well, that's intentional. It's so that you will make a decision versus him and hauling and yeah, too many options doesn't always make for the best decision. All right. Well, we're going to jump back into thinking of bets, but that was a great little tangent. I enjoyed it. Ice cream, jam. Is it we're getting too close to dinner while we're recording this? Maybe. <laughs> so one of the things that you actually pointed out during some of our preliminary discussions on the book is this fundamental attribution error. Could you dive into that a little bit more? Yeah, the fundamental attribution error probably factors in when we think about our future selves or we think about alternative forces of action. But its core is in how we relate to other people. Mm -hmm. The fundamental attribution error is typically expressed in some form like when I'm evaluating my own results, I take into account circumstances. Mm-hmm. When I evaluate an other person who has results, then I usually decide that it's based on their character and their fundamental nature as a human being. Okay. So that was a lot of words. So let me give an example. If you're driving on the interstate and another car, swerves or is just kind of lazy driving over over the lane and all those sorts of things. Our tendency is to explain that by reference to their character or their training or some absolute about their personality. Mm-hmm. Where if you're driving and you kind of lazy get out of the lane or whatever, then you're probably going to just describe your own behavior as a result of, oh, well, I saw X and Y happening, or, oh, you know, I, you know, I was listening to the radio or something like that that's more circumstantial, mm-hmm. right? Now, when we're talking about thinking in bets, what happens, and this is going to be a little bit of a seeming digression, but let me go get it. As we're learning to make these decisions in a world of hidden information, like poker, mm-hmm. We evaluate ourselves against other players. And this is probably the most technical poker idea in the book. But she makes the point that in addition to learning from our own experience, we need to watch and learn about the experience of others. So I think she says the average poker player plays one hand out of six. And so if you only use your own information as a guide to how to learn, then you're missing out on five-sixths of the information that's available. So she says, watch other players and see what they do. But if you do that, it's easy to say uh, in a heads-up match, oh, I would have won that hand. I just got unlucky versus I made a poor decision. But it's real easy when I look at when I win and thus you lose. Mm-hmm. It's really easy for me to say, well, you know, Rebecca's just not as good a poker player as I am. But I really have no information. So this fundamental attribution error, right? If I got beat, it was because of luck. But if you got beat, it was because of skill, lack of skill, <laughs> right? 
really interferes with our ability to learn over multiple instances, and particularly those where other people are taking action. So how did I spiral around with that? Did I wind up hitting the runway at the end? or I think you totally hit the runway at the end. I think it's something that we all we all do. I, mean, I think the traffic was a great example because, you know, the person could have been swerving, you know, I think a lot of times, especially with modern day drivers, it's like, oh, they're texting while driving. How dare they? And then you pick up your phone and you do the same thing. <laughs> and, and we get all, you know, how dare they? You know, they're yeah. bad, bad people. And this is the fundamental attribution there. They're bad, bad people. Right. Well, you know, one of the things that I've started doing to calm my own stress in traffic is I tell myself lies about what's going on with other people. You know, oh, there, you know, if somebody's speeding, I will literally tell myself they've got a medical emergency. I need to get out there. And you can control those stories that you tell your, that you tell yourself. Unfortunately, that's not covered in thinking that's we'll do another book for you. <laughs> Yes, because you and I have talked quite a bit about the story you tell yourself and, and using that as a as a uh, conversation tactic with certain in certain situations. So that's definitely one I think we can unpack in the future. So we are getting close to our time on the 16th minute here. So finally, what is your biggest takeaway from thinking in bets? Well, it's going to take a little more description as well, but I'll go for it. Duke brings up the notion of resulting, resulting like result with an I and G on it, resulting. And by this term, and she may have coined it for all I know, by this term, she means that when we evaluate our decisions, we overemphasize the result. Mm -hmm. So if there's a decision in a poker hand and we wind up losing the hand, then we say, ooh, it must have been a bad decision. Mm -hmm. Well, in a hidden information game or a, a game of chance, right, uncertainty, that is less often true. And deciding what a bad decision is is a little bit harder, right? So let me back up and start over a little bit or give a different example. So with resulting defined as we focus too much on the result of the situation and don't focus on whether it's actually a good decision or not, then what we're really doing is we don't have a good definition of good decision versus bad decision. Because as I said, in poker, you can make all of the right bets and still lose. Mm -hmm. And if you say, if you if your automatic response is, I lost the hand, so my decision making must be bad, then those two things don't necessarily correlate. I see. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does actually make sense because you're looking at something that you could make all the good decisions in the world and still not come out ahead. You know? Absolutely. And that very much transfers to business decision making. And particularly with reference to decisions that other people make in a business. So it's very easy for us as observers to say, well, I know Rebecca made this decision and I know that the outcome was bad. 
So it's very easy then for me to assume that Rebecca's not a good decision maker. Mm-hmm. I know this to be false because we've worked together for a long Thanks time. Thanks for throwing that out there. Yeah, everybody in the world, if you need a decision made, call Rebecca. She'll <laughs> decision. But, you know, we begin, and this is with the fundamental attribution error as well. You know, we begin to say, well, that individual has bad outcomes. So that decision must have been. When in fact, it could have been the best decision possible and they lost to bad luck or they lost to uncertainty. In addition to giving that grace to other people, we need to give it to ourselves and thus avoid the notion of resolving. So think about your decision-making process when you're considering whether it was a good decision or a bad decision. And then take the result and learn how to change your decision-making process rather than just saying, ooh, it was a bad decision. Yeah, I think we also kind of have to learn that not all decisions are inherently good or bad. Some are. Yeah. I've uh, made a few of them and probably dated a few more. But, you know... Not all decisions are have that judgment call. And I think it's something with this concept of resulting and the giving ourselves and others grace for making the decision with the information we have in the moment. You know, it's the often the best decision you could have made. Under the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Under uncertainty or under hidden information. Right? And so it does force us to consider that the very definition of a good decision versus a bad decision. So with reference to potential future book uh, reviews or, or podcasts, uh, mm-hmm. there's a book called Decisive. I think it's by Chip and Dan Heath. Okay. So thinking in bets is a little bit about what can we learn from poker that applies to decision-making in life. Decisive is more about how to set up your decision-making process so that you arrive at good decisions. And it has rules like you want a limited number of options, which we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. but it also talks about how bad we are with should I do this or not decisions. Oh, I see another episode of the podcast brewing here. Perhaps we cover that in a future episode. I think uh, we should. All right. Well, that's it for us today on the 16th minute. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. And I love the fact that we have set up a new episode before we finish this one. I think that'll be great. Uh, We always have great conversations around stuff like this. So again, not just thank you for being on Kavu's 16th minute, but I really do appreciate you having been here. Yeah. So we did uh, manage perhaps manage or influence some people's decision-making on a future episode by giving them a cliffhanger. Here we go. Join us next time for the 16th minute. Thanks, y'all. The 16th minute is brought to you by our sponsor, Sagayo. Start your technology journey and transform your business with Sagayo's innovative business technology services. Visit sagayo.io today. This episode of the Kavu 16th Minute is brought to you by Kavu Benefit Corporation. 
The 16th Minute is hosted by Rebecca Dobrinsky and is produced by Melissa Blanchard. Audio production is done by Sam Dunn. The logo was created by Melissa Crochet and our resident scrum master, Matteo Antello, keeps us all in line so we can bring you these episodes.